Thanks, mm -hmm. Kelly. Uh, thanks so much for inviting us to be on today to discuss the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, not so new anymore, but public access policy for case records of the appellate and trial court. Um, I'm Andrea, again, I'm the Assistant Court Administrator of AOPC, and David and I have been doing this roadshow since about May, so we're happy to do it yet once again. Uh, the new public access policy, why is this not changing? Okay, thanks. Uh, the, uh, Supreme Court adopted this policy on January 6, 2017. It's not, it becomes effective on January 6, 2018. Um, and again, it applies to all case records filed in uh, with the trial and the appellate courts. On your screen, just past at the bottom, is our website. If you go there, you're going to be able to access the policies, uh, the explanatory report, other related materials, including forms that we'll be addressing during this presentation. Um, so this is a roadmap of what we're going to discuss today. We have a lot to cover in the remaining 57 minutes, uh, but we're going to start by briefly describing why we felt we needed a statewide policy, and then David will discuss the uh, policy provisions that should matter the most to you. Um, before the internet age, Basically, court records uh, fell under the pr protection of practical obscurity, which meant you had to go to the um, filing office to see them. And that was described in the U.S. Supreme Court case there that's cited as um, the balance between, you know, privacy interests in the public records against the public interest in their release. As I'm sure you all know, uh, there is a little legal basis for accessing court records in the common law as well as in the state and federal constitutions. Um, and the privacy interest that's rooted in our state constitution was recently reaffirmed by our Pennsylvania Supreme Court in a case involving the right to know law and the State Educators Association. So uh, as I noted, uh, prior to the internet, you had to uh, go to the courthouse in Pike County or Erie County or Philadelphia County, find the right office, get the file, look through the file to find the information. Um, also referred to as miles to files, now information previously available only locally is available globally. So the idea that you have privacy in public records really no longer exists. And what we found in the um, year or two that we spent studying this issue and developing uh, the policy, uh, we found for-profit websites with names like mugshots and busted mugshots and just mugshots, um, which post mugshots from arrest long after pre-trial diversion or other programs allowed these individuals to have a clean record. So they had a clean record maybe in the eye of the law, but not online. And one of the ways that uh, these sites make money is by charging a fee for the individual to remove their mug mugshot image and the details that are posted on the site. Um, as I'm sure you'll agree, mugshots, mugshots are merely artifacts of an arrest, not proof of a conviction. Uh, and many people whose images were on display were never found guilty or the charges had been dropped. Uh, we found when we were studying this issue that there were more than 80 mugshot websites 
um, in existence and removal from one website, you paid the fee uh, to remove it from one website, but that didn't remove it from the remaining uh, 79. Uh, this screenshot is of a federal uh, suit settlement involving Citizens Information Associates. Uh, the owner of this uh, corporation, which ran bustedmugshots.com and mugshotsonline.com, um, had to uh, pay $7,500, remove the offending mugshots for free. However, this left hundreds of thousands of mugshots in Ohio alone unaffected. And while there's been attempts at legislation and policy in various states um, to not process payment to these sites and rein in other intrusions, you know, this is, this is the difficulty with this issue because there's a constant tension and rebalancing between privacy and public access uh, to the court records. So we took a look at whether there are, are issues with online court records. And we found uh, in Alabama, um, using Alabama's uh, online court records, which included information like full names, dates of birth, social security numbers, uh, uh, an individual opened up bank accounts, obtained loans in people's names, faked driver's licenses, which then allowed him to obtain credit cards for the bank accounts that he opened, um, and access money transferred in from payday loan companies on the loans he secured with this information from the online court records. And even the uh, Alabama governor's social security number was in these records. So we turned our look to Pennsylvania uh, to see what we could find there. And uh, the next several screenshots are examples of online records in, posted by filing offices of our Courts of Common Pleas. Uh, the redactions you see are redactions that our committee put in place um, because we didn't want to further uh, violate uh, these individuals' privacy um, by displaying the information. And what you see redacted there are pieces of information pertaining to um, an individual, but also maybe their children, parents, partners, spouses, and businesses, identities, finances, and health. Um, we found in particular that family law cases were just rife with personal information. Uh, we found drug tests with uh, results posted online for free. Um, here is an example of a full American Express number uh, that was uh, posted online just a couple screens before you had the, the person's full name, date of birth, and home address. So what could you do with that information? Um, here is an example of an extensive medical record of a child that was uh, adversely affected by his parents' very contentious divorce, uh, and it was attached to a motion for payment of medical expenses. Um, the child had a serious bedwetting issue, um, and it was online and available for any nosy neighbor or classmate uh, to peruse. So now that uh, we have online court records and no longer an implicit protection from practical obscurity, how are privacy interests being uh, protected currently by PA courts? Well, we have a number of existing legal authorities uh, that are listed here on your screen, whether in uh, rules such as the rules of juvenile 
um, procedure, uh, limiting access to dependency and delinquency actions, uh, the Juvenile Act itself. We have uh, Section 5988 uh, of the Judicial Code, which prohibits the disclosure of the name of a minor victim in sexual or physical abuse cases. And uh, back in 2010, the Supreme Court revamped uh, the public access policy for the Magisterial District Court. Uh, and for the first time, uh, restricted access to social security numbers and financial account numbers and filings with the MDJ offices. Uh, but courts and filing offices outside of those legal authorities have answered the uh, question of what is going to be redacted or open differently, essentially developing a system of public access uh, by geography. And here are some examples of what has been in place. Uh, by local rule, uh, this local rule placed the um, requirement on the filer to redact identifying information such as social security numbers and financial account numbers from the documents they filed with the court. Some courts and filing offices have the resources and wherewithal to um, institute redaction software with their either their e-filing system or their online uh, record systems. And so that's an example from one of those courts. Uh, this is a partial screenshot of the magisterial district court confidential information sheet that's been in place under the court's policy since 2010 that I just referenced. Um, and a number of other local jurisdictions, um, counties in Pennsylvania also have instituted a confidential information sheet. Uh, and essentially you put the uh, confidential information in this sheet and then don't put it in whatever documents you're filing with the court. We had um, a local rule in in Delaware County, essentially impounding all divorce uh, records filed after uh, December 31st, 1939, only accessible uh, and open to inspection by the parties or their attorneys of record. However, in the neighboring county right next door, yes, they seal uh, divorce matters, but it could be viewed by any member of the of the uh, PA bar, as well as the parties to the litigation and authorized governmental agencies. Uh, this is an example, a recent example, of um, temporary online restrictions for access to uh, the civil record in Allegheny County during um, a jury trial. And what they found in Allegheny County where electronic records are um, available and open to the public for free, uh, there was a concern that jurors were accessing the filings uh, during the trial and could see, for example, motions in limine to exclude evidence uh, or other filings or rulings that they shouldn't be uh, seeing. So an administrative order was uh, issued temporarily blocking access uh, to the case immediately <coughs> prior to jury selection through the verdict. Uh, so the lack of uniformity uh, in our judicial system of public access uh, was creating issues and confusion uh, for the public, litigants, and counsel. Uh, how can uh, attorneys with multi-county or statewide practices keep track of and comply with each court's requirements? 
So that issue combined with um, several factors such as a growing number of e-filing systems being put in place at the trial court level, as well as uh, related decisions to post documents online, the uh, divergence of how sensitive information and records are treated um, by judicial districts, and the fact that uh, we uh, have moved at the state level, uh, at least with respect to the appellate courts, uh, to a statewide e-filing system, um, and for some courts of common pleas sort of on a pilot basis. So it was these factors that sort of propelled us to take a look at this issue and um, decide, you know, to tackle uh, a statewide policy. That and the fact that we have litigants and third parties, um, some of whom are represented, unrepresented, or not voluntary participants in the process, who may not even know whether their private uh, personal identifying information uh, will be released online for public viewing. So on February 7th, 2015, uh, our committee put out a proposed uh, policy for a 60-day comment period. We did receive a wide range of opinions and comments, uh, thoroughly considered them. Um, some, sometimes uh, they were unable to be reconciled. We had comments that said everything should be out there open for free. And uh, we had an equal number of comments saying, you know, you need to close down whole uh, case types uh, because they should not be open for the public and somewhere between those two viewpoints uh, we think we found a happy medium. The uh, Supreme Court adopted the policy in January of this year and again it goes into effect in just a few short weeks on January 6th. Uh, the policy governs how records will be accessed by the public how uh, the filing offices are to handle requests for public access, uh, the establishment of uh, any fees for copying, and um, most importantly for you today, how parties and counsel must file documents that are sensitive or contain information that's deemed confidential by the policy. Uh, before I turn it over to David, this is a list of the other unified judicial system uh, public access policies that we have in place. You can see that the court has been very um, active in terms of addressing this issue. And uh, now I am going to turn it over to David so he can tell you about the things that you're going to need to attend to in a few weeks. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, David? Now, yes. I'm sorry. Before you begin, I'm going to launch the first of our polls. Um, as I said in the beginning, if you are planning to request CLE credits for your participation in the webinar, you will need to respond to the poll. Um, once you respond, the box will disappear and David can continue on with the um, presentation. And I'm gonna go ahead and do that now. And you can go ahead, David, thank you. Oh, okay, no problem. Hey, uh, 
before I start, I just want to encourage anyone. We're typically doing this live with an audience. Uh, we encourage questions. Questions help us focus in on what your concerns are. Uh, so if you have a question, we have our chat box open right here. Uh, please get the question in. Don't, don't feel like you have to be polite and wait to the end. And quite frankly, once somebody jumps into the pool, the pool becomes crowded pretty quickly, okay? So with that, we're going to start talking about the policy provisions itself. Andrea did a great job of sort of laying the, uh, 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 laying the foundation that we're going to build upon. So this policy applies to all documents filed in every case on or after January 6th of 2018. So 17 days from now is what we're looking at. A big caveat is this does not apply to register of wills filings. Uh, under this policy, registers of wills are not considered a custodian whose documents fall within the purview of this policy. So. The policy is not very long. It's about 21 pages long. If you go on the website that Andrea referenced before, and we're going to reference a few other times, you can see the policy explanatory report. I encourage everybody to read those documents. If you don't have time to read those documents and you're pressed for time, there are four sections you're definitely going to want to read, and those are sections 7 through 10. They are the heart and the soul of the policy that we're going to talk about. Whenever you think of a public access policy, you always think about three big questions. What information is being safeguarded? How is it being safeguarded? And who's doing the safeguarding? And those questions are, are going to be answered by these four uh, provisions. So we're going to stop first at Section 7. Section 7 is going to tell us how to safeguard pieces of information, like say a social security number. Section 8 is going to tell us how to safeguard an entire document, like a medical record. Section 9 is going to tell us what the public can see when they go to the courthouse and ask to see the file there. And Section 10 is going to tell us what you can see online, because you're going to see that you can see more at the courthouse than you can see online. So let's jump right into the first one, Section 7. So Section 7 identifies certain pieces of information that are confidential and deserve safeguarding. And the safeguarding is going to be done in one of two ways. And the decision is made by the judicial district, not by the filer. So each judicial district will determine when a document is filed in their county how this information is going to be safeguarded. They're going to tell the filer either to use a confidential information sheet Andrea talked about this before. If you filed in any MDJ office since January for, or July 1st, 2010, you might have had to use a confidential information sheet. You know, I had to give the MDJ a social security number. I didn't put it on the pleading. I put it on this separate document called a confidential information sheet. I gave both documents to the court. Now the court has both documents. They have the pleading, they have the social security number, but when a member of the public like me walks up to the court and asks to see the filing, I can see the pleading. I can't see the confidential information sheet that has the social it. So that's one option. The judicial district may say filers use confidential information sheets, or it may say filers file two versions of every document a redacted and an unredacted. So using our social security number example, I need to give the court a social security number, I give it in the unredacted filing. The unredacted filing has everything in it. That's the filing that the court uses. The redacted filing does not have the SOCIA in it. 
So when a member of the public comes up to the court and asks to see the file, they can see the redacted filing. They can't see the unredacted filing. So, you know, I'm just mentioning some of the things on the slide. Confidential information sheets being used in the MDJ courts for seven years. Just to show you, we were looking at our sister courts. Arizona, Minnesota, Washington are a few states that use confidential information sheets. Now, Section 7. Here's the information on this slide that's being safeguarded under Section 7. It's not a very long list, and there's no surprises here. Social security numbers. Financial account numbers, except for the last four digits of an active account, which is the subject of the case, could be included in the pleading. Those two seem very familiar or should seem very familiar to anyone who practices in MDJ courts for the last seven years because those are the same two things that are safeguarded at MDJ courts in their filings. Now, the other four items are new things, driver's license numbers, state identification numbers, State identification numbers, if you don't do criminal law, are, finger, are your fingerprint social security numbers. When they fingerprint you, your fingerprints are given a unique identifier called a SID. That way, if you're arrested again and give a different name, well, they're still ketchup. Uh, minors' names and dates of birth, except when the minor is being charged as an adult in a criminal matter. If you're charged as an adult, you're going to be treated as an adult. And then the last matter, which is specific just to family law cases, is abuse victims address and other contact information. So if you're in a county that's using confidential information sheets, and I think because we have on the website that Andrea referenced you before, each county is creating a local rule, and we believe all of them will be done before January 6th, that determines what that county is doing with regards to this decision. If you go on our website, you click under policies, under the policies, you will see a list of all the counties and they will tell you which one they're using. I think right now confidential information sheets are running ahead. So most counties at the moment are gonna use this form that you see on the website. Once again, this form is also on the AOPC website. Click under public access forms and you'll see one of these. If you've used this, if you've done the MDJ stuff, this will look very familiar to you. Now, here's some uh, unredacted, redacted. That just means two versions: one's redacted, one's unredacted. So nothing, nothing important. Real, not should be important. Nothing needed more there. So important point here: if you're working in a case category that's already sealed pursuant to legal authority, like for instance, an adoption case or a juvenile case. You don't need to worry about the confidential information sheet or the redacted unredacted because the information's already being protected, secured from the public by those statutory authorities, so you don't have to do anything extra here. Other important ground rules. It's solely the responsibility of the filer to comply with the policy. The filer is going to show that they're understand the policy by uh uh, agreeing or signing this certification language. Now this certification language is already embedded in the confidential information form. So if you're using a confidential information form, when you sign it, you're already agreeing to that language. We also created on our website a standalone certification form that just has this language. So if you need a standalone form, you can go to our website. If you just want to embed this language in your pleading, that's fine as well, but you need the language. Other important ground rules, court 
court and the custodians are not required to review pleadings to make sure they comply with this policy. Some may, and I believe some are going to because they've said they are, but don't expect uh, or don't rely upon court staff saying, oh, hey, David, you put the social security number here, you didn't put on the confidential information form, take it back and fix it. And it's important because if a document is filed that doesn't secure the information the way it's supposed to, there's two problems. One is that information is not secured. So if a member of the public comes up and wants to see that pleading and that pleading has a social security number in it, that pleading is accessible to the public. The second important thing is the third bullet. The court can order a non-compliant filing to be sealed, redacted, or impose sanctions. Now, we have seen some sanctions at the federal court level. Any of you who do the PACER system, you know that when you're filing in PACER, you get to that point where you're chugging along with the document, where you check off the box, it says something along the line that I complied with rule 5.2, you know, confidentiality rules, you know, don't give full social, don't give dates of birth, stuff like that. Well, if you check that off and your filing does have it, we've seen federal courts rule on the matter. So we're going to look at two decisions that are a couple of years old from a federal district court in Minnesota. In the first matter, uh, we all know in the federal system, you can't provide full social security numbers. Uh, there was a document filed by an attorney that consisted that contained 179 full social security numbers. Uh, the, the, obviously, the filing had to be taken care of and a $5,000 donation to a local food bank was required. Uh, in the next matter, uh, we had an individual who provided full dates of birth, full names of minors, full account numbers, and full social security numbers. All of those things you don't do in the federal system and you click on PACER saying you didn't do that. Uh, so this document did it. So this person had to write a letter to every individual whose social security number, date of birth, and name was disclosed, probably saying something starting like, I'm a lousy attorney. Uh, they also had to provide credit monitoring service. I don't know if malpractice insurance would cover that. And they had to make a $300 donation to a food bank. We certainly don't know what kind of sanctions we'll see in Pennsylvania. Hopefully we won't need any because there'll be full compliance with the policy. Uh, now, next big bucket, confidential documents. So these are entire documents that contain so much uh, confidential information that we need to safeguard the entire document because otherwise there's no way to ensure that everything's taken care of. And this is going to be done through the use of a confidential document form. So uh, if you have a medical record, you will file the medical record under a confidential document form. That way, the uh, court office will know that this is a form that's not accessible to the public. The form itself, um, which let me just screen ahead for a moment, the form itself, you will identify what document you have underneath the confidential document form. And that form itself is accessible to the public, so the public can see David Price did file a medical record in this case. So there's public access that way. But the underlying medical record is not accessible to the public. So I'm just going to flip back. So we, there's a very small category of records that fall under this type of uh, scenario, confidential document forms. So 
financial records, tax returns, W-2s, 1099s, check registries, stuff like this, financial source documents that we talk about. All of these are a confidential document form. Medical and psychological records, obviously, those are uh, forms deserve safeguarding. Children and youth services records, minors educational records, and then the last three really are geared towards family law, and that would be marital property inventory and pretrial statements, look at rule 1020.33, income and expense statements, look at rule 1910.27C, and agreements between the parties, look at the statute section 3105. Looks like we have our first question. I'd throw you candy, but you won't forget it. Uh, will the confidential document form have to be used if submitting one of these confidential documents as evidence in a trial, but not necessarily filed with a prothonator? Great question. I'm glad you asked. So this policy is focused on documents that are being filed with the filing office only. When we're talking about exhibits and evidence being introduced in a court proceeding, this policy does not govern those documents. However, there was recently formed within the last six months a working group that's looking at custody and control issues with regards to exhibits that are, are in court proceedings and are within the court's uh, purview. Uh, this is because of incidents that have happened with exhibits that have been uh, filed with courts and those exhibits have been tampered with. As part of that inquiry, that working group is aware of the public access policy and is looking at what, if anything, additional safeguards we need to build into those protocols, whatever they have ended up being, with regards to public access. But this policy would not be what you look at. And once again, thanks for jumping in the pool first. So we looked at the form already. If you go on the AOPC website, you're gonna see that form under the public records form. Uh, same sort of ground rules as with the confidential information sheet. If you're working on a case that's already sealed to other or not available to the public on other authority, a juvenile case, an adoption case. You don't need to worry about this because the public can't see those documents anyway. We have the same certification language that we had with the confidential information form. This certification language is already embedded, embedded in the confidential document form. So when you sign this and file this, you're already certifying that language same rule that this is the responsibility of the person filing the document with the court to comply with this. Court or custodian's not going to review. A party's failure, once again, raises two issues. One, that medical record is out there for the world to see. And two, uh, the court may uh, impose some uh, sealing, redaction, or, or sanctions, et cetera. And once again, just showing we borrow from any state that we can steal from when it looks good. Minnesota and South Dakota, thank you for going through the wall first. Certification of compliance. Uh, if you just need to certify something, you're not found a confidential document form, you're not found a confidential information form, but you still in your filing need to tell the court or certify to the court that this filing complies with the policy. We developed a standalone form that just has that certification language there at the bottom. That's all it has up. Oh, if I went this way, I would have showed you the right form. So this is the form that you see. It just has a certification language on it that's on our website. 
And also, we often get asked about pro se filers a lot. So as part of the group that created this policy, there was two groups. One group that helped develop the policy that was sent to the court and a current group that's helping to implement the policy. And both of those groups was representatives of the courts, uh, Pennsylvania Bar Association, but more importantly, of the filing offices in the counties. So the clerk of courts, the Prothonotaries Association, the clerk of orphans courts association, they all had representatives who were sitting at the table with us because these are the folks who are getting the documents. These are the folks, uh, you know, who might have to deliver bad news, you know what I mean, in a, in a sense, if they're reviewing the documents. So they helped us create educational tools to educate uh, filers about this. So things like posters that are uh, made up for each office that talk about confidential documents form, confidential information sheet, redacted, unredacted versions. We created one page handouts that can be given across the counter to folks that uh, talks in detail about these provisions. We also created, and it's gonna be released this week, videos, three to five minute videos that talk about how you do how you file a confidential document how you use a confidential information form how you do redacted unredacted how you access a record at the courthouse those three to five minute videos are going to be on the same uh, public access web page later this week um, if you looked at the pfa uh, videos that we did some time ago it's that type of format uh, but we've picked up these sort of tricks of the trades from other states who have already gone before us, and the PBA has been helping us get out the word, and I think Andrea might have mentioned, we've done about 40-some of these presentations uh, trying to get the word out there. So that's Section 7 and 8. That's half of the big stuff we need to talk about. So Section 9 and 10. So Section 9, we're now focusing on what can the public see when they get to the courthouse. All right, remember when we're talking about public, no matter where we're talking about public in this policy, public refers to the party and the attorneys on their case. Or excuse me, party does not refer to the parties and the attorneys on the case. So parties and attorneys get the same access they've always had. Public includes somebody like me who has no relationship to the case, who's going up and wanting to see the case file in the court. So this policy basically creates special protections for two new categories of cases, and that's birth record cases and incapacity proceedings guardianship matters. When the committee that created the policy recommendation for the court was looking at those case files, and what we did is we would go get sample case files and just start leafing through them. There seemed to be so much information in those two files that required some safeguarding that if we started to safeguard, uh, required you to safeguard everything on every piece of paper, it, it would be really burdensome for everybody. So in those matters, birth records and incapacity guardianship matters, those records are not accessible to the public except for a docket and with the birth records, court order, court opinions, uh, with the incapacity uh, thing, a final decree adjudicating a person who is incapacitated. So the public can still see the docket to see, you know, what's going on, motions being filed, proceedings being held, et cetera. They can see sort of the final outcomes by seeing the court order, court opinion, or the uh, final decree, but they don't get to see uh, anything else. Other than those two new categories of safeguarding, 
The rest of the stuff is stuff we already talked about or stuff that's already in place today. So you can't see the confidential information sheet that has a social security number on it. Or if you're in a county that requires unredacted pleadings, you can't see the unredacted pleading that has a social security number on it. With the confidential document forms, although you can see the confidential document form sort of cover sheet, I'll call it, that says that in this case, David Price's medical record was filed, you can't see the underlying medical record. Oh, I'm sorry, we got another question. Will the confidential information uh, policy apply to PFA petitions and temporary or final PFA orders? If so, is there a plan for how law enforcement will be able to identify the addresses that the defendant is excluded from? Thank you for asking that question. So remember with this policy, all when we talk about Section 7 and we talk about Section 8, uh, the policy begins with phraseology, unless otherwise provided in legal authority, then we do what's in seven, then we do what's in eight. With PFA petitions and orders, those orders and petitions are pretty much already embedded in the rules of civil procedure and require that certain information be on those orders and be in those pleadings. So if the rules require you to put information in a pleading, you put information in the pleading. Now, remember with orders, any order, this policy is focused on documents that are coming into the court that, be, that are being provided by a party uh, or filer, or party filer. Uh, this does not govern documents that are coming out of the court, court orders, court opinions, court notices. And the reason is, there's clearly going to be some instances where some of this confidential information will need to be put in a court order. PFA is a great example. Another great example is a custody order. How could you have a custody order but not name the children in the order? Yeah, I can't imagine you can do that. So although courts are, are through the judicial education that they're going to be given, and judicial education they've already gotten to an extent, are encouraged to be familiar with the policy and to take care when they're crafting a document that's going to be accessible to the public, an order, an opinion, or a notice that has confidential information. Maybe ask them to think, is it always required? If one of our co-chairs, uh, Judge Murphy from Montgomery County was here, who does orphans court matters, she would talk about there is this one document that's filed all the time in her court where attorneys put the social security number on it. And there is no reason for the social to be there. They put it there because the attorney who taught them 10, 20 years ago, he or she put it there. And so just like attorneys need to take a, a, a look at when you're putting confidential information here, do you really need to? Because the best way to protect it is don't give it to the court. Also, judges will be asked the same thing. So uh, I, let me just keep going through the slide. I, I got so off track there. Uh, other things to remember that you can't see when you come to the court out, information sealed pursuant court order or to a court order like it is today. Uh, the next bullet, information determined by the court administrator of Pennsylvania with the approval of the chief justice of Pennsylvania. Andrea had mentioned the prior three public access policies that the court has adopted since 2007. 
This provision has been in every one of those policies. And it was put in there with the thought being in mind that maybe there could be some incident or something that arose that would require uh, some piece of information on a statewide basis in every case to be protected. And this would be a mechanism that the court administrator and the chief justice of Pennsylvania could safeguard that information on a statewide basis in every case uh, by invoking this, giving notice through the PA bulletin, stuff of that nature. We really haven't had that scenario arise. So I can't tell you how we would use that or if it would ever be used, but I feel pretty comfortable in saying, if you're on a webinar with me 10 years from now talking about another public access policy, I'll probably say it has that information, we still haven't used it. And then the last item is any information restricted by federal law, state law, state court rule. And when we talk to courts, we're often asked, well, what does that mean? So we created on the public access website that I keep plugging, uh, as part of the policy, this limits, uh, already limits an existing law on uh, information in court records. It's only a six page chart. We're gonna update it as we need to. But when we found rules or statutes or case law that says certain information isn't accessible, we put it in one nice little neat place. So if you don't do criminal law, but you always wondered why an unexecuted search warrant isn't accessible to the public, this chart will tell you to go look at Rule 212 of the Rules of Criminal Procedure. Now, we are moving from looking at records in a courthouse to looking at records remotely. Sort of Andrea was talking about before the practical obscurity uh, provision, I'll call this, of the policy. We're keeping that alive by saying if you still come to the courthouse, if you do the miles for the files, you're gonna see more information at the courthouse than you can see remotely online when it's two o'clock in the morning and you're in your pajamas just wondering what's going on with your neighbor. I, a lot of us do that. You don't have to respond. Uh, so, what you can't see online. Any information that you can't see at the courthouse, you can't see online. Juror witness victim information in criminal cases, you can't see online. An entire transcript lodged of records, you can't see online. However, if a part of the transcript is attached to a pleading, that is fine. Also remember with transcripts, protecting sensitive information in transcript is already covered in Rule of Judicial Administration 4014. So if you're, looking in, if you're looking at a transcript and you think protection needs to be given to sensitive information in there, 4014 is the rule you want to look at, not necessarily this policy. Uh, IFP petitions are, uh, are not available online. Original reproduced records in appellate case, not online. I think someday for those of you folks who are using the PAC file system to file your information with one of the three appellate courts, you know that uh, you know the system has all that information and it's accessible to only this at this point the parties and attorneys. I think at some point it'll be accessible to everybody, but for now it's not. And then the two big changes when it comes to records online: family court records and basically orphans court records. Family court records are not going to be accessible online except for a docket, court order, and court opinion. So you can, and we'll talk about what the docket means in a second. And then for orphans court matters, essentially, once again, a docket, court orders, and court opinions. So they can see what's going on at the case online, they can see the orders and opinions, but they can't see uh, other things. And when we talk about dockets, the docket online for the orphans court matters and the family form matters, 
family court matters are going to be these elements, a party's names, city, state, zip of a party, council of records, name and address, docket number, docket entries, so you see what's going on, and filing date of the case as well as case records. Also remember with the online provision, because we get asked this a lot, there are a lot of counties who put a lot of information online, and there's a lot of counties who don't. If a county doesn't want to put any information online, this policy does not require it. Just because we have this provision here doesn't require the party to, or the county to put anything online. It just says, if you're going to put something online, these are the rules of the road. And another important thing that I might have glanced over is remember that this provision is perspective. We already mentioned a lot of counties have a lot of records online already today. So anything that's online as of January 5th, 2016, the date before this policy goes into effect, anything online as of that date can be online in perpetuity. This policy does not require counties to take down records. It doesn't require counties to do anything. Now, I think some counties may take down some records and try to clean them up, but the part that the policy does not require that. And also remember, if you have client's information that's online uh, today, and that kind of makes you a little queasy, this policy isn't going to help you. This just says any document that is posted online January 6th or in the, any date after that must comply with Section 10. Okay, everyone. I'm now going to talk about the sections of the policy that bookend uh, the sections that David just went through. Um, section two uh, basically, I think, reinforces uh, that in the unified judicial system of Pennsylvania, we look to establish principles that facilitate the statewide practice of law and uh, establish consistency and access protocols so that the public has essentially the same experience across jurisdictions. Uh, the first principle really speaks to that. And as David mentioned, uh, when the court uh, ordered uh, the order was adopted order was issued adopting the policy it directed each judicial district to evaluate the continued necessity of any existing rules uh, concerning topics addressed by the policy and as we've mentioned um, i think we are uh, really four-fifths of the way there in terms of um, getting the judicial district local rules online on our website please make sure that you visit that so that you understand uh, what the requirements are in the particular jurisdictions that you practice in. Uh, the remaining principles appear uh, in our other public access policies that we've um, mentioned, such as the magisterial district court policy, and um, basically reinforce the notion that records are the business of the filing office and facilitating access must be balanced with the primary business of the court, which is the adjudication of cases. Um, section three is very straightforward, and uh, basically the policy statement underscores that the judiciary is committed to the presumption of openness to its records as grounded in Article One, Sections 7, 9, and 11 of the Pennsylvania Constitution and common law. Uh, the, the long-standing tradition of access to court records and the important interest it serves was best described by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and its decision of Commonwealth versus Fenstermacher. Uh, it serves uh, interests such as assuring the public that justice is done even handedly and fairly, 
uh, discouraging perjury and the misconduct of participants. And open records prevents decisions uh, based on secret bias or partiality, among a number of other ones that are listed in that uh, decision. Excuse second, me, if I, if I could just cut in quickly, we're going to sure. do the second poll right now. If okay. you are requesting CLE credits, please um, go ahead and respond to this so that we're able to grant you credit. Thank you, Andrea. Can I continue, Kelly? Yes, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Uh, so section four is the section that a member of the public, uh, not counsel, not parties to the case, not uh, government employees or officials that are acting in their official capacities are gonna look to, to be able to request access to a, a case record filed in a trial or appellate court. Um, the policy uh, specifies that the request can be made orally, uh, but local filing offices may require a written request. I would expect you may see that particularly um, if the request is um, asking for a number of records or for instance, if the uh, records are archived and, and stored off-site, um, the request has to identify or describe um, with specificity the records that are being sought so that the filing offices knows uh, what they're looking for. And uh, we did uh, publish a written request form. It appears on our website, and it looks like that. Um, it's very straightforward, as is the procedures, as are the procedures that are specified in Section 5 of the policy, which detail how the filing offices have to respond to the requests that they receive. Uh, there is no time limit, you know, um, unlike, for instance, the Right to Know Law or our Rule of Judicial Administration 509 for access to financial records. Um, the feedback we got during public comment is, you know, you set five business days and that becomes the default. So what the filing offices are instructed to do is fulfill the request as promptly as possible um, under the circumstances that exist at the time of the request. Um, if the uh, custodian can't do that, uh, if there's going to be a delay uh, a delay or denial of the request, the custodian has to inform the requester of the specific reasons why. Um, failure to pay fees um, is a valid reason for denying access, but they can't impose fees for viewing uh, records, inspecting records stored at the courthouse or in court facilities. Um, the custodians have to put the denial in writing if the request was made in writing, and any denials uh, can be reviewed um, with the court uh, that has jurisdiction over the custodian by filing the appropriate um, motion or application. Uh, section six uh, pertains to fees. The only fee uh, that is set is a photocopying fee and it limits uh, the fee at 25 cents per page, much of what you may be familiar with as established under the right to know law, unless provided by applicable authority. And there are statutes uh, in place in the judicial code that uh, permit filing offices to charge a higher uh, copy fee. Uh, so those will continue to um, exist. Uh, the goal of uh, this section obviously is that whatever fees are charged, and, and sometimes they're not, like in the case of our uh, web docket sheets that you may be familiar with for um, the criminal courts, the common pleas, and the appellate courts, and the NDJ courts, 
they exist on our portal, uh, UJS portal for free um, to be accessed, as well as um, our online appellate court opinions and orders are posted for free. You know, the goal is that fees don't become a barrier to uh, public access to the records. The fee schedules uh, adopted by the custodians must be uh, physically posted uh, in, the, uh, in the court office as well as on their website. Uh, section 11 uh, is uh, entitled Correcting uh, Clerical Errors, and um, this is sort of a carry forward from our electronic case record um, policy for the Unified Judicial System. The electronic case record policy was adopted back in 2007, uh, and it um, basically guides what information is going to be posted on those web docket sheets, for, for example, for the criminal trial courts, um, and what is going to be able to be released in bulk uh, upon request uh, by our office. Uh, and what we found when we were uh, looking and developing that policy and having public hearings on that policy back in the mid-2000s um, was that, you know, typos happen, clerical errors happen. And so that policy has um, a similar provision that uh, provides a very uh, streamlined administrative protocol for correcting those typos. We carried that forward to this policy and um, basically wanted to provide a way for uh, correction of errors or omissions that appear in the case records that are patently evident because of court personnel's action or inaction. What am I talking about? Again, I'm talking about typos. I'm talking about missed scans of the records as they're being uploaded into a document management system. You know, they're missing pages five through nine out of a 25-page um, pleading. We want uh, the ability to correct that. And so we uh, prepared and the policy required us to develop a, a request form, and that's uh, an example of it on your screen. Again, posted on the uh, pacourts.us site. Um, and, um, the intent, again, of Section 11 is to uh, streamline the process of correcting information in the case record that, that needs to be corrected for one way or another, um, essentially correcting these clerical inaccuracies without a court order um, as affirmed by our Pennsylvania Supreme Court that the courts have the inherent power to correct errors in their uh, records in Jackson v. Hendrick, a 2000 um, decision. So what's important to note, though, about this section is that it does not provide relief for failure to comply with Section 7, uh, that's the confidential information section, and Section 8, the confidential document section of the policy, as those sections already provide remedy for those uh, who uh, do not comply with restricting information and documents when they file with court, and David went over that at length, so I'm not gonna go through that again. Um, last but not least, uh, another step to ensure that we're all on the same page come January 6th of 2018, uh, the uh, policy has to be available uh, for public inspection, it's uh, posted um, on every court's website, on our website, in the court facilities. As David mentioned, we develop posters, handouts, videos. I mean, we have uh, 
really committed ourselves to ensuring that uh, the word gets out. Um, another way that we're um, being helped uh, is that the Supreme Court Rules Committees published for public comment earlier this fall proposed changes to various rules of procedure to reference the policy, essentially cross-references, so that as practitioners were working through the rules, um, whatever specific rule that they were working on, they have a heads up, for example, and a note, hey, remember this policy exists that you're uh, required to protect confidential information and documents. Um, we hope that uh, those rules will be promulgated um, in the very near future. I also want to uh, draw to your attention that the disciplinary board about the same time published um, for public comment amendment to the uh, rules of professional conduct, rule 1.1 uh, pertaining to competent representation, the comment eight that they published um, noted that lawyers should be familiar with the policies of the court in which they're practicing, which, which includes this public access policy. And uh, also Rule 1.6, uh, Comment 25, uh, that the lawyers should be acting in accordance with any policies governing disclosure of sensitive and confidential information, and again, specifically referencing this policy. Uh, so last but not least, there's the effective date. Once again, uh, there is a site to uh, our website, which will get you right to the um, policy page. And from there, uh, there is a link to the forms page. Uh, you don't need to uh, watch the website for the forms. They're on there. Um, and a lot of the local rules are posted as those rules get published in the bulletin. We are putting them on the website. I think we are nearly out of time, so David and I would like just to thank you very much for your um, participation today and for your questions, uh, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you both very much for being willing to do this. I just, if anybody has any questions they would like to type in the chat box, please do so right now. If not, we can follow up at a later date on any questions you may have. We'd welcome them, Kelly. Thank you very much. Okay. I don't see any, so we'll go ahead and end. Thanks, everyone. Have a great holiday. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.